Hi, uh, this is Jerry Gillette. I'm uh, doing my Intermediates podcast, episode two, basically for my Wednesday night uh, MassCom research methods class we missed last Wednesday and wanted to give you guys some tips for the exam, talk a little bit about uh, the reading for that week we missed. I'm kind of going to do that by talking a little bit about some of the stuff I studied in my dissertation to help give you some examples. Um, if you're listening for any other reason, maybe that Tuesday night class, there's some good stuff for you. Otherwise, uh, let me know what you think. Um, I'm probably going to talk for about 15 minutes here, go through the reading material, and give you some tips for the exam. So first thing, that page 30 to 31, I really just wanted you to focus on external validity. Um, they talk about four ways to try to protect that. If you understand what external validity is and know those four ways, you're in a really good place for the exam. Um, basically, what we're talking about with external validity is, is the quality of how well you can generalize to other situations or other populations. So by doing those four things, by getting a true random sample, by uh, using heterogeneous or different samples, you can then generalize to other places. And ideally, you want to take a sample that reflects the qualities of your overall population. So if you're looking at young people of a certain age, can you narrow down a sample to um, a much smaller number of people who have similar qualities? So that's why the college student thing is not necessarily the best, because it's usually not representative of the larger sample. And then the fourth one our authors throw in is uh, trying to replicate and study these variables over time is another good way to see if you can generalize to other situations. So that's pretty much the bulk of 30 to 31. And then as you get into um, the rest of the reading, differentiating a, a concept from a construct. I may have mentioned this in class, but the big thing is a, a concept is usually a little less abstract. Uh, usually it can be measured uh, directly, and it usually refers to just one variable, construct, uh, that's usually something you're trying to get at that's a combination of measures. Uh, it's a little more abstract, it's some type of quality that's hard to observe directly. Um, it may have a meaning only in the context of that one study. So my experience with that on my dissertation, uh, I was really interested in people getting engaged in the video game playing process, and if that changes, um, probably strengthens their enjoyment, and then if there's any aggression that comes out from that, you would think that more engaged players would strengthen those uh, aggressive effects too. But I wanted to see that. So I was testing to see um, if people are predisposed to getting more into, more engaged in the game. So I thought, well, it's, it's abstract, it's hard to observe directly, but can I measure that a number of ways and try to tap into that construct? So I was looking at a couple of different variables. I was looking at people with uh, openness to new experiences, if they're willing to accept rules in any type of games, and if they're willing to suspend disbelief. I thought by measuring those three things, I could tap into this construct of um, receptivity to, to being engaged. So I tried it. It didn't quite work out for me, but it's an example of a construct made up of multiple concepts. Um, later, they talk about operationalizing uh, definitions. What we want to know for that is that operational means measurement. Uh, there's a great 
chart on page 47 that gives you a couple examples of that. So again, this is one you will see on the test. Uh, if you can understand what it means to write an operational definition, how that ties in with actually measuring, maybe give a couple of examples, you are in a great place. Uh, moving on from there, another couple of big things to touch on. Um, we focused on quantitative research, but this is kind of our first taste in the reading where they describe qualitative. And they give examples, focus groups, uh, field observations, in-depth interviews, case studies. Um, some of the general characteristics here, you've got uh, researchers asking questions, but they can change the questions for each case or each participant. They're flexible. If someone starts telling a good story here, the researcher in a qualitative study would ask them to follow up. They can go in different directions. Um, a lot of times with these studies, you can get people in their natural habitats or settings, uh, so especially with field observations. And the whole goal here is that you, you ask these questions or you study a small group of people, but you go really deep. Um, you're trying to get an in-depth understanding. Uh, a lot of times people use this to explore a phenomenon. Um, the problem with doing that, you may get some really great stuff, but kind of the drawback is that if you're asking a small amount of people, you might get some really unique answers that don't really generalize to others, or they may describe situations, or you may observe situations, and it's really hard to say that this is the norm. Um, kind of at odds with the quantitative focus where you are trying to generalize. So here you've got larger samples. Um, you're using survey, experiment, content analysis, perhaps other methods. But the drawback to this one is it's artificial because you're doing it in a lab or you're asking questions in a way that people are very much aware that they're being observed. So you might see some people do both. You might see some people specialize in one over another. We'll get more into that later in the semester, but if you know some of those differences, um, that will help you out. Uh, the other big idea here, as far as qualitative and quantitative, is, is we first see this idea of triangulation. Uh, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I always love seeing this in studies. Uh, our text calls it using both qualitative and quantitative measures to try to tap into the phenomenon you're studying. Uh, we may also see other people talk about triangulation as using many measures for one variable. You know, so if you are trying to um, understand, in my case, about someone's um, video game playing experiences, we could do quantitative, we could do qualitative, we could do both if we're trying to tap into how engaged they get. And if I have qualitative and quantitative measures of that, I would hope that they both um, move in the same direction, that, that they both point me to the same type of answer and I have a good idea that I'm using good measurement for both of these. Um, when I was doing the dissertation, I wanted to study engagement and there was a researcher who's mainly quantitative who wanted to study engagement, and she um, developed qualitative interviews, really long, in-depth, open-ended questions about people getting absorbed into the game and um, that experience of kind of losing themselves. Uh, so based on this wide array of qualitative, open-ended responses, lots of writing, she sorted them out into categories and then developed a quantitative scale. So like our text goes into different types of scales maybe uh, a bunch of statements ranking your agreement 1 through 7 uh, or 1 through 5 if you want to do a true Likert scale. Uh, she developed that 
out of qualitative research and time-consuming qualitative research to get to a quantitative measure. So our text mentions a little bit about that as possible. Um, also uh, very important as they get into the levels of measurement. Uh, I always remember that as NOIR, N-O-I-R, nominal, ordinal, interval, and ratio. Um, the quick and dirty version here, uh, I'm going to use some examples with the Red Sox last year and their beards. Um, so if we were measuring that at a nominal level, it would mean we're categorizing the player's beards in name only. So we might go by style of beard and say number one is a goatee, number two is a mustache, number three is a neck beard, and number four is whatever that cool thing Poppy has, uh, David Ortiz. The idea is that um, if we're sorting them in this way, they have to be mutually exclusive, which means you code a player as having one or the other. They can't really be both. Um, so we couldn't have somebody with a goatee and a mustache in this coding. We'd have to have some type of other number. Um, so that would be nominal. It doesn't mean that one's better than another or that the, you can rank them or do any math with them. We're just sorting. So classically, uh, sex is one. We might say zero is women, men is one, or something along those lines. Or we might mark people's political affiliation. Uh, it doesn't mean one has more or less of something. It just means they're in different categories. Ordinal measurement, the second one, uh, that implies there's an order, there's a ranking, that we'd be ranking from small to large. So if we're sticking with the Red Sox beards, we might say length of hair and go from one being very short to two to three to four being very long. Um, so now we know that like a four beard is longer than a one beard. We don't know by how much, and we don't know that the distance between one to two is the same as two to three. That's kind of classic ordinal. Interval now, next level up, we do know the distance between is equal. So if we were doing it that way, uh, a beard length of 1 to 2 is going to be the same distance or the same difference as in 2 to 3. Right? So here we can do some addition and subtraction, but we can't do proportions or division uh, or ratios, which would be the fourth level ratio which means we can do all the mathematical operations. We know that um, the differences are equal. We know that um, we can do all the mathematical operations. Uh, they get into some nitty-gritty stuff that, depending on the type of stats you want to use, which we haven't gotten to yet, that um, it can be a big difference between using ordinal and interval levels of measurement but then they kind of say, well, new statisticians have tested all that, and kind of new school thinking is it's not that big a difference. So um, I don't think it's going to have a huge impact for you as you guys design your studies for your groups, um, but you may want to consider are there better ways to measure variables than nominal, because with the last three we can do more statistical tests. Um, basically, be able to briefly describe those four types of measurement. Um, if I give you an example, could you pick out which level it is? Um, can you know the basic characteristics that separate them? Okay, now we're kind of winding down the last couple minutes here, things I want to talk about. Um, the types of different scales. Um, I want to throw out, for the most part, a lot of statisticians would say you want scales, quantitative scales, that go one through seven. 
Um, some will go one through five, some will have different numbers, but the idea here is that um, you probably want to use whatever scales other researchers have used. So if they have a measurement and they gave an answer set one through seven, you probably want to use one through seven unless you have a really good reason for changing it. For the most part, as you guys search out stuff for your projects, you're going to want to roll with exactly what the researchers did. If you're confused about that, please, please chat with me. There's some different reasons. Uh, different types of scales. The Likert, that's the one that goes from strongly disagree to strongly agree. I think uh, if you're being strict, the Likert scale is 1 through 5, but a lot of people would go 1 through 7, kind of that midpoint, whether it's um, 3 or 4, would be neutral, and then you kind of go up, agree, um, slightly, well, usually it's like slightly agree, agree, strongly agree, and on the flip side. Uh, semantic differential scale, you think of that as bipolar adjectives or opposite words. Uh, that's on page 57. They have a bunch of examples. So like biased versus unbiased. There's a bunch of dashes in between and your respondent checks off wherever they think they land. Uh, trustworthy, untrustworthy, good, bad, fun, boring, you know, those kind of opposite words. And you ask them, which word do they land on? Maybe you give them seven points, and midpoint is neutral. Um, similar idea. Um, so those are the two big ones that I assume most of your research are going to use liquor or semantic differential scales. Um, and then we get into talking about reliability and validity. Uh, two big concepts. One's not important than the other, but they're both really important. Um, reliability. Uh, if you're looking at um, a measure's reliability, you're basically looking to see that that measure would be consistent from one session to the next. Um, you're trying to reduce error, which always comes in a little bit, but if you have a good, reliable measure, uh, we've done some testing and we're assuming that it's the same from one session to the next. A uh, couple qualities of reliability. reliability. It's stable over time. So if I give the measurement to you today, and then I give it to you in two weeks, and then in six weeks, uh, I'm assuming that your score is going to cluster pretty closely together across each one of those times. If it's changing a lot, then maybe that measure is not so great. Maybe it's not really capturing it um, in such a way that I have a lot of confidence. Um, another type of reliability is internal consistency. You know, usually whatever measure you're using for a variable you're going to want to have multiple items to get at that measure. So maybe it's a 10-item scale tapping into how engaged are you, or maybe 20 items, and do you have an open personality, um, or maybe it's about Facebook use. Whatever it is, it's usually you've got multiple questions tapping into that, and then the researcher will go back and perform a couple of statistical tests to see if all 10 or all 20 of those items um, measure the same way. Uh, maybe out of the 20, 19 are working well, but one isn't. So you can, that would be kind of an example of having good internal consistency if almost all of them are pointing in the same direction. But if they're all over the place, uh, it's not consistent, that wouldn't be a very reliable measure. And then the third type of reliability check they talk about is cross-test reliability. Is there a way that you could split your measure in half um, tested it multiple times and 
make sure that both parts are measuring the same way. Um, they talk about parallel measurement. So those would be the three different ways to check reliability. Our big takeaway there um, is that measure consistent across times. Um, validity, we might want to think of that as does this measure what we actually want it to measure? If we claim this is the important variable, um, let's say it's um, um, an open personality, uh, someone who's open to new experiences, if we think in our study that's really important, and we come up with a measure for openness, are we certain that that measure actually taps into that variable? Right? Um, so as we talked a little bit about operational definitions and setting up measurement, that's where it becomes really important. Um, the text talks about four different types of validity. Um, they talk about face validity, predictive, concurrent, and construct validity. So make sure you're familiar with those four types uh, from page 59 to 61. Um, that'll set you up well for the exam. And again, stressing that both of those are really important. I wouldn't say that there's one more important than the other. So those are the things I was going to stress had we actually had class. Um, we had covered most of the material up until this point anyway. And then I wanted to give you a couple tips um, about the exam. So I'm pulling the exam up right now. Here we go. Uh, so if you're listening this long, you get a couple bonus tips. Um, be familiar with the four phases of the research process. Um, I think that would help you. We're, we talked about content analysis in class. Again, you're not responsible for those readings or for those supplemental materials. If you'd like to use them, that's great. But if you can understand terms like um, coding scheme, know the first couple steps that would go into a content analysis, I think that will prepare you well. Um, we talked about 15 threats to internal validity. Uh, we briefly touched upon some of them. We didn't talk about all 15, but your textbook mentions those. Again, if I could give you an example, or if maybe I'd ask you to give an example, as long as you're familiar enough with those 15, that you would be able to see them and, and know how they could threaten internal validity. Um, that's good. Um, other tips I may want to throw out? Let me think here. I just mentioned the uh, ways to protect external validity, the four ways that our textbook authors mention. Uh, be familiar with the measurement levels, the types of scales. That will pretty much cover a lot of the main points from the exam. So use the study guide, um, work together. Uh, hopefully you use this for a couple last minute tips and um, I'll be checking email the next couple days if, uh, if there's additional questions. So hope that helps. Good luck with the exam. Um, we'll talk more about group projects after. We'll probably devote the first half the class to the exam. And then go from there with group stuff. All right. 
Good luck, guys. Uh, thanks for listening.